So hello everyone and welcome back to the Beyond Crime podcast. So today we are grateful to be joined by Peter. Peter, do you mind introducing yourself? Hello, um, yes, my name's Peter Blexley. Um, I'm an old bloke. Um, I'm 61. I'm a Scotland Yard detective. I did over 20 years in the Met and over uh, 10 of those years I spent working undercover, pretending to be a gangster, a villain, a criminal, a crook, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I was medically retired from the police 20 years ago, since when I've scratched a living as an author and broadcaster. Thank you very much. And do you want to talk a bit about what you do now? Um, certainly. I've, I've, I've written four books, and um, my latest book is all about the projects that currently dominates my life. Um, and I'll give a little bit of background and context to that, if I may. Yeah, go for it. Um, I, I used to be involved in a, a popular Channel 4 television show called Hunted. And that was a show where members of the public volunteered to become fugitives and go on the run uh, with a view to trying to win uh, a slice of a £100,000 prize pot. I did six series of Hunted, four of the main show, and two celebrity versions, and decided to leave that show in February 2019, uh, essentially because I'd kind of taken it as far as I felt I could in terms of my role as the chief of, of the Hunters. And on the last series that was televised, that I was a part of, we caught all the fugitives which had been our stated aim right from day one. And we were all absolutely delighted that none of those undeserving fugitives got their grubby mitts on any of the hundred grand. <laughs> um, and we parted very hard that night. It, would all, it had always been our ambition. Um, it was a result of some, quite frankly, brilliant investigative work much of which never made it on screen, sadly, but there you go. Mm -hmm. That's so They have the, uh, the power of the edit, not us. Um, and it was really a, a terrific achievement with, with which we were all delighted. So I felt that my involvement in that show had, had run its course. Yeah. And I was looking for my next major project. My publisher had agreed that I could do another book as long as I had the right subject material. As much as I'd written three books at that point, I'd written three plays for BBC Radio 4, I'd been in, involved in countless documentaries and a story consultant to many dramas, both TV and film, all that kind of stuff. The fact of, the, of, of life was I was best known, and I'm not criticising this at all, but I was best known for hunting pretend fugitives on an entertainment reality show on ten. Um, so I felt, well, why not combine my experience, my lifetime as an investigator, um, my skill set, the network of people that I've built up over the years, former detectives, um, other law enforcement, ex-military and the like, and what I'm best known for, and instead of hunting pretend fugitives, I'll hunt a real one. Yeah. And so for the last... For the last two years, I have been hunting six foot five Liverpudlian Kevin Thomas Parle, P A R L E, who, whilst he is unconvicted of these crimes, he is very much wanted 
in connection with two separate and ghastly murders, both of which were committed in Liverpool. Yeah. And have you, like, when you've been hunting him, have you found it a lot more interesting than doing the TV show hunting? Because how did you even get into the TV show in the first place? I know you said you'd done loads of investigation experience previously, but what made you decide that you wanted to do that? Well, when I left the cops in 1999, um, medically retired because I'd had a catastrophic mental health breakdown whilst living in witness protection, um, essentially at the age of 40, I found myself on the scrap heap of life. Um, I flunked my education foolishly, left school at 16 with barely a qualification to my name. Um, and all I'd ever known was policing. Uh, and there I was, 40 years old, no apprenticeship to fall back on, no trade, no calling, um, nothing whatsoever. And I thought, what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because believe it or not, 40 years old is actually young. I can hear you all tutting and saying, don't be daft, 40 is ancient, <laughs> right? But trust me, it isn't. Um, it, it, it really isn't. And, and I thought, well, I had a, I felt that I had a very interesting and exciting story to tell about the decade working undercover in particular, um, the catastrophic end to my policing career, living in witness protection, the constant threat of an assassin's bullet, and all of that, I thought, would, would, would make a good book. And I was lucky enough to get a publishing deal. And so in 2001, my autobiography, The Gangbuster, still available on Amazon, everybody. <laughs> Plug and, it. <laughs> um, and it's still a piece of work that I'm proud of. And it still sells and still entertains people to this day. Um, that really propelled me from a very secretive life where I had absolutely no publicity whatsoever because of the nature of my work, and suddenly I'm on the radio and I'm on the telly because news outlets want me to comment on crime and policing, their impact on society, and many other things as well. So the kind of 180-degree turn in my life could not be more dramatic. Yeah. Um, and the gangbuster got picked up by a TV production company who were making a show about an undercover cop. So I was brought on to that show as a, as a series consultant, and we completely revamped it, um, and it ended up doing another three series, which were very successful, got nominated for the Best Drama BAFTA, and it starred James Nesbitt in the lead role as Tommy Murphy, an undercover cop. Um, and, and I've remained in the media virtually ever since, um, hence, I, I contributed to so many crime shows, documentaries, um, either whether they were based on things that I'd actually been a part of or as a talking head, you know, rent a cop um, to, to go on these crime documentaries and, and comment on them. And that's the space that I've been in ever since. So when Shine TV, the production company, had this idea on a piece of paper which was can we film a manhunt? Um, they got hold of me. We had a meeting. They did a sort of screen test where they asked me a couple of questions and I answered them to camera. And uh, a short while later, they said, yeah, we want you to be a part of hunting. And, and so that quite 
but very enjoyable journey began. Yeah, so your experience is invaluable. Like, oh, I'm sure they'd be glad to have you. Uh, and considering in 1999, you didn't have a clue what to do. It sounds like you really, your hard work paid off and you did land on your feet. Uh, and you previously mentioned Kevin Paul, and we'd just love to hear more about it because I know it interests you and it's your current piece of work. So if you're happy to sort of go into more detail about the last few years with that case, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about that because what drives me, in fact, what drives virtually all the work I do these days, is victims of crime. Um, victims, I feel, um, often kind of get shortchanged, and forgive me if that's a rather clunky expression, but, you know, as, as um, a great friend of mine, Tracy Hansen, who lost her 21-year-old son to murder in 2015, as Tracy said to me recently, she said, victims don't sell. And what she means is there are countless books out there about serial killers. There's also podcasts, TV dramas, all of that. And people, for some bizarre kind of reason, have a fascination with these odious people. And those things sell. Those books, those TV dramas, those movies, they sell. If yeah. they're about crime, criminals and serial killers. Victims don't sell. And consequently, I feel that um, in, in that in that regard, victims often do not get the coverage, uh, the publicity, shall we say, that they should do. Of course, there are notorious cases like Madeleine McCann, for example, a mystery that remains unsolved that gets acres of inches and hours of airtime. But that's generally the sort of exception that proves the rule. So many victims are just another name that is read once in a paper and then they kind of disappear off the radar forever. My hunt for Kevin Powell is all about the victims of the two murders that he's wanted for. And I'll tell you a bit about them, if I may. Yes. The first murder that Powell is wanted for took place in 2004 in Grafton Street in an area called the Dingle in Liverpool. And Liam Kelly was a 16-year-old child, a boy, a kid. And he was blasted to death with a shotgun in the early hours of the morning. Um, a, a, a ghastly crime. Now, Liam was no model student. Well, nor was I at 16. But Liam was denied the opportunity to grow, to mature, to enter manhood, to find a life partner to settle down, have a family to provide for and, and get a good and strong work ethic. He was denied all that because he was blasted in the arm and the chest and as he crawled to a house to try and get some help, the 999 services were called, but Liam's life could not be saved. He was a kid. Fast forward 14 months to August 2005, and 22-year-old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves, was on the sofa in her home, um, also in Liverpool. When three men burst into the house, she was blasted to death with a, sh with a shotgun, and then her house and her body was set on fire. An absolutely abominable crime. Mm. Um, the general perception is that the intended target of that attack on Lucy's home 
was her partner, a man called Gary Campbell, who was upstairs in bed with their youngest child. Uh, the other two kids were with the grandparents that night. Gary Campbell was awoken by the noises from downstairs and the gunshots and very quickly realised that the house was an inferno and in order to escape that blaze, he had to smash a first floor window and jump out together with the two-year-old. Um, Gary ran round to the front of the house, smashed another window in and dragged Lucy's lifeless body from that blaze. He has given me the most remarkable interview um, about the events that happened that night. And so when our podcast returns, which it will do, um, I ask everybody to be patient because we can't bring it back just yet because I can't make information public that will benefit Paul and his cronies. We have so much work to do, so many doors to knock on, so many people to get in front of, um, many of whom will not be very happy to see me. Um, and I need to get on planes, trains and automobiles in order to be able to do that. Um, and, and I defy anybody not to be deeply, deeply moved by the very graphic um, and really kind of heartfelt uh, testimony that, that Gary gives about that night. Um, and, and the woman he loved, who was mother of his three young kids, and who has been described to me by everybody that knew Lucy. They say she was as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. It's just shocking, really, because obviously it's known that the majority of murders tend to actually happen within the family, but Kevin seems to have just targeted these two, well, people that their lives were taken too soon. We don't know if they did anything wrong. We highly doubt it, especially not Lucy. And the fact that that happened in 2004 and justice still hasn't really been served. And after all your work, it's just such a shame, really, but... Yeah, just thank you for your work because their stories and victim stories deserve to be told. Um, yeah. Thank you, yeah, indeed they do. This is why I'm doing it because as far as I'm concerned, if, if we as a civilised functioning society are actually going to kind of move forward, then there needs to be justice. There is a very strong sense, I think, within all of us. It may be latent, but we need to believe in a sense of right and wrong, of truth over lies and of justice. So when somebody is accused of two murders as ghastly as these, it's only right that he stands in front of a court and answers the allegations made against him. Paul's been on the run for over 16 years mm. and I've been hunting him for two of those years. He must be found. He will be found. He, he absolutely will be found. And then... The criminal justice system, I know it's flawed, I, I, I know all that, but mm -hmm. it can run its course. Um, and by doing so, perhaps there will be some justice for Liam and Lucy, rest their souls. Exactly, and if he can do that twice, it's just a fear that he'll do something like that again. And does the public deserve to be protected from somebody that has the ability to do something like that? Um, and well, it's just so yeah, fascinating. I mean, the, the criminal history books are absolutely littered with examples of people who have committed murder once, got away with it, and then gone on to commit murder again. Um, sadly, 
uh, those numbers are increasing as well because unsolved murders are, are on the rise, which to me is, is saddening but also surprising because a detective's toolkit these days contains so much more than it did back in the day when I was investigating murders. Forensic science has galloped on unrecognisably from when I went to a murder scene and we thought we were extremely lucky if we got a fingerprint. There was no DNA analysis or profiling back in the day. Um, and there is, of course, so much that can be done on that front and, and other forensic science in relation to fibres and, and, and other bodily secretions, fluids, shoe marks and, and the like. It's just remarkable what can be done these days. And yet, people are committing murder and getting away with it, which is a large part of what drives me as well, because I would like to see justice for other victims that I've written about in, in my other books. And I would urge anybody with an interest in crime to please have a look, have a read, because they are truly baffling, fascinating, fascinating and, and very saddening cases out there that I've researched in depth and written about. And also, if anyone listening, uh, what was your podcast called again? Sorry, Peter. Okay, well, the podcast, which is on BBC Sounds and other platforms, is called Manhunt, Finding Man Kevin Powell. And my latest book is also called Manhunt. Um, and it's a very, very different vehicle from the podcast. Thousands of people have enjoyed both because they are such different examples of storytelling. The book is very much my first person narrative and it details the journey that I've been on, the highs and the lows, and there's been plenty of those, the mistakes I've made, the progress that we've that we've made. Um, and I I write with my heart on my sleeve, to be perfectly frank. Um, what what you read is 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 me being unashamedly and sometimes brutally honest. Um, and these these both these storytelling vehicles um, are not about profit. This is about Paul. Well, actually, it's about Liam and Lucy, but of course, it's about Paul because it's him that I'm hunting. Mm. And in the last two years, out of these projects, I've earned £13,000 and every single penny has been ploughed back in to the hunt for Kevin Paul. I have not put one carrot on my family's dining table out of all of this. Just... I'm sorry, we've got builders... Uh, a neighbour's property. Do, do we need to do all that again? No, no, that's fine. That was absolutely okay. fine. I caught you. I, yeah, I was just, you left me speechless, really, because that's just such an amazing thing to do. Um, you mentioned previously that you had experiences in witness protection. Do you mind talking about like that and how you got there and you explained you had a bit of fear while you were there earlier? Yeah, no, well, so I was at the peak of my powers as an undercover cop. Um, if you'll forgive the sort of self-grandiosement, if you will, but I was really at the top of my game. If it came to an undercover drugs operation in the UK or abroad, um, you know, that, that was a sizable operation where the quantities of drugs were vast and the villains involved were top division kind of operators, then my phone rang. Um, and it was no different on a particular operation that was codenamed Operation Zulu Cricket. And uh, a, a team of detectives had identified uh, an international 
heroin smuggling operation um, and um, members of this gang if you will were, oper were offering industrial scale quantities of heroin for sale so myself and an undercover operative from Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, as they were known then, uh, stepped forward to fulfil the role of the buyers. We were the crooks of criminals that could handle such quantities and had vast amounts of money available to pay for it. It was a very complex operation, multi-agency. It involved the FBI in America, the Drug Enforcement Agency in America, the Irish police, the Garda Shikana, um, and law enforcement from, from other places as well. And there'd been a lot of infighting, um, which was unbeknown to me, because my job was just to get on with it, deal with the bad guys, convince them I was a bona fide crook, and get them to deliver the gear um, <laughs> so that they could be arrested, the gear could be recovered. That was kind of my role, and I was pretty good at it. Um, so the bad guys were arrested. The biggest ever landside seizure of heroin was made in the UK, street value of £4 million. Um, but eventually, after the guys had been stewing in their own juices in prison cells for a while, they deduced that I must have been an undercover cop. And they worked on the theory that if they killed me, they killed the evidence. And to an extent, they were, they were right. Yeah. Um, that threat in itself wasn't too much of an issue because they had no details of who I was. They only knew the false name that I'd used during that operation. So the likelihood of them being able to find me was very, very slim. Until, and unfortunately, an officer compiled a briefing note for the Deputy Commissioner to take to some meeting, some powwow with all the other law enforcement agencies who were scratching each other's eyes out at the time. Um, and that idiot who compiled that report foolishly put my real name in there oh, as opposed to the code number which is allocated to me by the undercover unit at Scotland Yard and that was the first unforgivable and almost unexplainable error my surname is very distinct there's not many of us Blexley B-L-E-K-S-L-E-Y mm. um, there's only about 14 of us in the UK I think and I've fathered most of them <laughs> uh, no, that's a joke. I've only followed three of them. And uh, so that report, Scott, it's now got my real name in it. It's printed off. It's taken out of police premises. None of that should have happened. It's in an unmarked police car, which this cop, the author of the report, parks up whilst he goes shopping. Really? Away home from work. Shopping. Uh, and guess what happens? I guess many of your listeners will, will already have guessed what happens. That car gets broken into and that report gets stolen. So now, potentially, there is a very real conspiracy to murder me that was picked up by the FBI on a phone tap in a bar in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, if that conspiracy to murder me is matched up with this report that's got my real and unusual name in it, then in all likelihood, my days are numbered. Yeah. So I get summoned to New Scotland Yard the following day, and by closer play, it had been decided that I needed to abandon my home, abandon my identity, abandon my life, and get parachuted into witness protection. 
Jesus. I hope that cop got fired after all that. No, he got promoted time and time again after that and ended up as a senior detective. Really? Sometimes, this is where you see that the little flaws in the system. You'll be like, oh, it's one mistake, but that mistake could have cost you your life. And how long were you in witness protection for? I had two catastrophic years living in perpetual fear of the assassin's bullet in the back of the head or coming out in the morning and checking under whatever vehicle it was I was using to make sure that nobody put a bomb underneath it. I also conspiracy theorised till the cows came home about how my name had got in that report, how it had been taken out of police premises, how it had been stolen and so on and so forth. Um, And of course... I was still expected to work undercover, unbelievably. So in the course of any one day, I'd be three different people. I'd be the identity that I was in the hideout, because it wasn't at home. I'd occasionally be myself as I drove to work and put on whatever radio station I wanted to listen to. And then when I got to work, the bosses would say, hey, Lex, there's another undercover job coming. Off you go. So by 11 o'clock in the morning, I'd already been three different people. Layer on that, the conspiracy theorising, the fear of the bullet, and the fact that I played a part in my own downfall in so much as I drank too much and I smoked too much. And you do, of course, have a recipe for disaster. And that disaster manifested itself in a catastrophic mental health breakdown, Mm -hmm. which led to me being incarcerated in a lock-in psychiatric ward for three and a half weeks. Wow. And it's just... But all because of one thing, it spiralled into another, and that was, it was just unfair. Like there's nothing you could have done, and I guess that sort of leads on to my next point of what happens when a job goes wrong, like when people don't do their jobs correctly, and yet they were still expecting you to be able to do other jobs, which your mind's going to obviously be distracted by the fact of what's happened previously. And I guess in a way you almost not had an identity crisis, that's the wrong word, but you probably found it quite difficult to keep track of these three different personas that you were supposed to sort of carry forward in work. It was very challenging. Back in the day, um, you had to sign. um, If you went shopping, this is before chip and pin and all of that, and you used a debit or a credit card, you'd be given a slip of paper to sign. Well, sometimes I'd go shopping swiftly hand over a card because I was in a bit of a hurry and then I'd go what card have I just handed over what name have I just bought these goods in so what signature have I got to put on this bit of paper (laughs) and it was it was ludicrous it wasn't well thought out by the bosses at the yard because these circumstances hadn't been encountered before there was nothing in the instruction book to look up and, and follow so they kind of made it up as they went along there was no visionary kind of step back, let's think about what's going to happen in one year, five years, ten years' time to this bloke. Um, everybody flew by the seat of their pants and, of course, got it wrong. And, uh, unfortunately, it, it all impacted on my mental well-being. Yeah, and it's not as glamorous as these sort of TV shows perceive it either, because it's real people's lives. Like It's affected you for a long time afterwards, not just in the time that you're expected to be undercover. Um, and I guess go, kind of going on from that, can you talk a bit about like the undercover training methods? How long were you actually doing undercover work for? Yeah, I worked undercover for over a decade when I started, way back in the mid-1980s. 
there was no formal recruitment, assessment, vetting, training. There was none of that. You just stuck your hand in the air and volunteered when the government said anybody want to do an undercover job. Um, when I went up to the yard, I, I, I saw how the current crop of undercover cops were doing it, and some of them were quite brilliant and very successful. But there was a bit of a kind of... Um, bit of a, an outdated model that some of them were following, I felt, in so much as that they put on a smart suit, uh, go to a friendly local jeweller in the Hatton Garden in London, borrow some big chains and rings and a very expensive watch, drape themselves all over a couch in a posh hotel bar uh, or restaurant and refuse to leave there. They would just want to do negotiations there and all of that. And that was fine. Sometimes it was successful but i was getting the word on the street from my network of informants that some of the bad guys were sussing this out and they were mm. saying to one another look if this bloke in a suit gold jewelry and expensive watch won't leave the hotel bar um to negotiate with you then in all likelihood he's an undercover cop right so so there was a desperate need to move things on and i argued with the uh, with the bosses at the yard and, and i was very fortunate to work with some visionary governors who, who trusted me i was saying look we've got to move on we've got to move forward here the bad guys are sussing the tactics out and if i'm only going to negotiate i say only if i'm going to negotiate and i'm not taking the 50 grand the 100 grams the 300 grand of the commissioner's money with me on these negotiations then why can't i go wherever they want me to go, whether that be their flat, their house, their favourite club, pub, restaurant, sauna, swimming pool. Why don't I go there and negotiate with them in these places? Because they'll feel more comfortable. It's their territory. Yeah. And the, and the bosses would say, well, what if you get held hostage? I said, well, I'll deal with that when it happens, but I'm not got any money with me. You know, I've not shown them any money at this point of the negotiations, so I'll go wherever they want to take me. And they backed me. That was good. Um, and we were in very successful. Yeah, it's, um, well, they're all going to be suspecting, and if there's more and more of you going undercover, uh, and you're not sort of actually physically getting involved in their lives and sort of their territory, as you said, because that's how they of often operate, they're going to suspect you straight away. Um, and, yeah, I guess you're probably relieved in a way to get out of that situation, but it sounds like you've taught the police a lot of what they need to know about undercover uh, and how to improve and, as you said, sort of develop to where they are today to be able to solve the cases that we're able to now but for you, people are now involved and embedded in organizations for years and it's not just one person it's often loads of different people in different sections of that organization um but yeah just fantastic work really interesting oh, i just wanted yeah, to and yeah you can and you i'll unashamedly plug the gangbuster again you know you can read about it it's a it's a boy's own tale of daring do you know, <laughs> all the kind of bonkers things that that, got, that I got up to, but, you know, I was young and I was fit and I was fearless back in the day. Um, um, and, and so it was all a bit of a roller coaster, so much of which I enjoyed. Because there is something very, very satisfying about convincing a bunch of career criminals who have been born and raised in organised crime. It's very satisfying when you convince them 
entirely that you are actually one of them and yeah. bring about their downfall. That is you know, a satisfying thing to do. I can imagine it's inside you're smiling, but you've got to sort of have this hard exterior. Um, and it is difficult. Well, I obviously can't even relate, but you're trying to gather all this information while pretending to be someone you're not. It's just really, really fascinating. And you sort of get to live live the secret life of a criminal. Uh, but I was just wondering if you sort of had anything else to add sort of about your past that you want to talk about or promote, because it's, yeah, we're just really fascinated listening. Yeah, I, I, I would ask people to consider buying my books. They're, they're, you, know, you, you, you get the first-person narrative. It's about what I do. I am absolutely passionate and concerned about unsolved murders, and I always want to try and deliver some form of justice for victims, and I guess I always will. You know, many of my peers are now retired and swanning around the golf course to fill their time. Mm. Well, that holds no allure for me whatsoever. I'm very driven. I've got the energy and enthusiasm for work that I had when I was half my age. Um, and, and I enjoy doing what I do, although I will really, really enjoy the hunt for Kevin Powell when he is captured and, and put in front of a court. Um, and I would urge people, please, to follow me on social media. I'm Peter Blexley on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn, all of that. I've got a website, peterblexley.com. And it's on those platforms where I post updates and whatever information I can. And the hunt for Kevin Powell used to be my hunt, but I renamed it back in February, the People's Hunt for Kevin Powell, because quite literally thousands of people are helping me, yeah. whether that be a retweet, a share, distributing flyers, posters, all of that, electronic versions or paper versions. If anybody wants posters and flyers, put in the post to them. I will gladly do that. Just, just message me with your address and I'll pop some in the post to you. Um, and bit by bit, download by download, flyer by flyer, word of mouth by word of mouth, we are shrinking the world for Kevin Powell. Yeah. It is the people's hunt for Kevin Powell and he will be found. And so many people will be able to say, I did my bit. So we have a crowd participation manhunt which is a pretty unique kind of thing and if people want to come on board i'd be very grateful i'm sure um uh, and you will be doing a great great um service to the memories of, of liam and lucy yeah are you happy for me to um share all your details on email and we have like a university facebook page and stuff um, which I Absolutely. Know 100% Please do. I, I could not be more contactable. You know, I've also got a burner phone, which <laughs> I'm currently holding in my hand, uh, which I purchased solely for the purpose of um, getting, you know, receiving information on Kevin Powell. And um, it's the best 10 quid I ever spent. Yeah. And the number is 07908. Six one three six nine four, and I'm thinking about oh seven nine zero eight 
shrinking world and sort of by just everybody doing their bit globally even if he has fled the country or he's changed his identity you can't change like your appearance as a whole and the way you act and he will eventually be found it's just such a shame he's got away with it for so long and you've sort of done the hard bit and by initially sort of starting this inquiry and identifying who actually did it but I guess that kind of links on to nicely to what to sort of your future hold in your eyes i guess you want to find him and then probably move on to the next one it sounds like you never want to rest really yeah the the, the thought of uh, the thought of retiring so to speak I, I i just quite simply cannot get my head around <laughs> that um at all i, I you know I'm, I'm i'm younger than i look but i've got i've got the energy and enthusiasm uh, that I had many, many years ago. So, no, I, I can't look beyond the hunt for Kevin Powell, to be perfectly frank with you, because it so dominates my life. Mm. Um, when, uh, as restrictions are, are lifted, lockdown restrictions are lifted, I will just give you this few words of warning. Buy me a drink and ask me about Kevin Powell at your peril, because I am the world's undisputed Kevin Powell bore. <laughs> and, and, and I will talk about it endlessly um, for hours. Back in the day, uh, there was a, a very successful book which was called Cocky, and it was written about a notorious Liverpool criminal called Curtis Warren. Well, when Cocky came out, it, it was very, very successful. And Kevin Powell said he wanted a book written about him at the time. Typical Kevin Powell. Um, and, um, well, in that regard, oh, pardon me. Well, in that regards, his ambition has been matched because I have written a book about him, but it's the world's longest wanted poster and it's probably not what he hoped. No. <laughs> he sounds like a very egotistical kind of, he wants his story flaunted rather than sort of, this is him, how to catch him, this is how to hunt him, sort of directory guide. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. Every, everybody we've met that knows him, whether that dates back to primary school, secondary school, all, everybody tells us he's a smart, intelligent guy. And a lot of the time, he used to think that he was the smartest guy in the room. And sometimes he was. So he clearly had a, a, a very high opinion of himself. And I begrudgingly have to give him some credit. To mm. have made capture for 16 years is no mean feat. No. Um, so clearly he's smart, he's streetwise, he's switched on. And he has a network of people that are willing to harbour him and fund him. But bit by bit, we're dismantling that network or... I am getting to find out about it. So that is why I'm sure we will all uh, we will all get so much satisfaction from, from the day that he's captured. 
Well, if they could do it with the likes of Escobar in the 1990s, hopefully it will happen with the likes of Paul, who deserves just as much uh, cruelty and justice that you will find him. But you couldn't be doing any more. And the fact that you like put out a podcast, books, you're speaking to people today, it's just so amazing. And I know the families of the victims will really appreciate it. And I guess it's just anything else you'd like to add. Um, I'll let you take the floor for a minute. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. I'd just like to say that if, you, uh, if you're students and you're studying at VCU or wherever, um, I'm incredibly jealous of you because I flunked my education and left school at 16. So well done to all of you, and I wish you all the very, very best in your studies. Um, if you happen to be at VCU and you see my great friend, Professor David Wilson, give him my regards. Um, I spoke to him just a couple of weeks ago. He's a man who I'm very fond of, and he features in our podcast um, and my book. He's been very gracious in giving interviews and commentary on Paul's personality uh, as he sees it and, and more. And he offers some really great contributions, as I say, to both the book and the pod. Um, thank you very much for listening, for coming on board. Um, for Kevin Powell, I do really, really appreciate it. Um, when the world starts turning properly once again, um, maybe I'll be coming to your university and having a chat and um, doing more of the public speaking, which I always used to do before this wretched virus um, came upon us. And thank you very much for listening. Kevin Powell must be found. Kevin Powell will be found. Exactly. And just thank you again, Peter. I'll make sure I plug your podcast, your books and your social media because anyone listening to this podcast in the first place, I know will have an interest in it. Yeah, thank you.